1: Rabbi Daniel Bogard cuts a distinctive figure when he walks into the Missouri State Legislature. He's usually wearing a yarmulke, and he's always got something to say. He's testified in favor of gun control, abortion rights. The next witness in opposition, please come forward. But over the last couple of years, the rabbi's primary focus has been trying to block legislation targeting trans kids.
0: Thank you all for being here late. My name is Daniel Bogard. I'm a proud third-generation Missourian. I'm the father of. This is
1: important to Rabbi Daniel because one of his three kids is trans.
0: As I just said, I'm a a rabbi and spend a lot of time with the Bible. So you can imagine what it was like three years ago when my uh, then four-year-old came to me in tears at night and said, "Daddy, do you think God could make me over again as a boy?"
1: When you're testifying this much, does your testimony change? Or are you getting up and saying the same thing every time?
0: Oh, yeah, I I change my testimony every time. Every time I sit there the night before and pull out my hair and try to figure out what are the magic words that will get my government just to leave my kid alone and leave my family alone.
1: Sometimes he'll bring one of his children to speak alongside him. Um, I have a trans brother that I'm really proud of. And um, if I play sports, I would want to have a team with everybody, including trans kids.
0: So yeah, I- I've tried teaching queer Jewish history. I've tried talking about religious liberty. I've, I've told intimate, private details about my child and my family uh, endless numbers of times. Jews look at this differently. 2,000 years ago, we have texts about there being six, seven, eight different genders. We have traditions that...
1: Suggest- Every time he testifies, inter- Rabbi Daniel sounds a little exhausted.
0: All right, further testimony and opposition. We have to be moving along here.
1: The ACLU is tracking 48 anti-LGBTQ bills in Missouri, more than any other state except Texas. There's a bill targeting drag shows, a bill targeting trans kids in sports a bill restricting what can be said about queer people in schools. Most of these bills did not become law, but it still feels like an onslaught to Rabbi Daniel. Because every time a new bill comes up, he's got to wake up at 5.30 in the morning, drive to Missouri's statehouse in Jefferson City. He says it used to feel like the drive was at least worth it.
0: There's been a real change over the years. Early on, particularly I would walk in as a rabbi wearing a, a Jewish head covering in a suit. I'm a white guy. Uh, and the legislators would sit up when I would start talking. Respectfully. You know? Respectfully, exactly. And over these three, four, five years, it's been wild watching them become anti-Semitic and often overtly anti-Semitic before our eyes, as, as I think they've realized just how progressive the Jewish community is, particularly when it comes to issues like uh, uh, trans kids and abortion.
1: When Rabbi Daniel mentions anti-Semitism here... One of the things he's talking about is the assumption many Missouri legislators seem to be making that there's an underlying religious case against trans people. As the leader of a Jewish congregation, Rabbi Daniel looks at the Bible and sees evidence of gender fluidity everywhere. To him, implying otherwise amounts to a rejection not just of his trans kid, but his whole belief system.
0: Uh, I've brought probably probably hundreds of people down to the state capitol at this point. Uh, because it changes them, they they come and they see it in person. They see the reality of Christian nationalism as a force in our state government up close, and they they can't they can't imagine that somehow it's like The West Wing uh, anymore.
1: It sounds like it takes a lot of effort for you to testify. Why do you keep putting the effort in?
0: Yeah, you know, truthfully, it's the days after testimony that are harder than testimony days. Why? There's a um, emotional, spiritual, psychological toll that comes from sitting and hearing the most powerful people in your state just say awful things about you and your child and just show what a distorted perspective they have on the world. And these are the people making our laws. Um, It's like a hangover from hope is what I would say. Uh, It's really hard to really have any hope to be optimistic at all
1: today on the show. What years of testifying about LGBTQ issues in a red state can tell you about where the conservative movement is headed now? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
0: Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how
1: much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Rabbi Daniel Bogard is so used to speaking in public, so used to advocating, that the very first time he called himself the parent of a trans kid, he was offering testimony at the state legislature. This was back in 2020, when the rabbi was still figuring out how to think about his kid, the one who'd just asked to be referred to by boy words. Rabbi Daniel felt like saying aloud what was going on would lock his whole family into a future. Solidify that no, his kid was not just a tomboy, and this was not just a phase. The rabbi was in Jefferson City because he brought his eldest cisgender son to testify against a trans sports bill on behalf of a friend. But as he sat there listening to the way lawmakers talked about families like his, he couldn't help himself.
0: And I just knew I I had to say something.
1: Huh. So, what were you hearing people say that got you so riled up?
0: You know, they bring in fake doctors uh, who say terrible things about how being trans is a mental illness. They talk about how, you know, trans boys are boys because. Their mothers didn't love them enough. Uh, trans girls are, are girls because their fathers didn't love them and support them enough. And, you know, you you look at my kid and my my kid isn't unstable. My kid isn't mentally ill. My, my kid is a really well-adjusted child. And truthfully, he always has been.
1: Do you remember what you said?
0: You know, I have no memories, actually, of, of what my testimony was about that first time other than... I remember saying, my name is Daniel Bogard. I'm a rabbi at Central Reform Congregation, and I am the proud parent of a trans son.
1: I mean, I just can't imagine the emotions of like that being the first time you say it out loud. You're not just saying it to even your congregation. You're saying it to legislators who've been attacking your kid.
0: Yeah. You know, the... That's part of the dynamic here. And in some ways, maybe it has made it personally easier for me to adjust to being the parent of a trans kid. I mean, I I think it wasn't going to be hard regardless. We live in a very queer community with lots and lots of thriving, amazing trans folks. So, right, we have examples of what it looks like to just be a wonderful, loving, successful trans person. But, you know, when, when your government is coming after your kid you got to get through your ambivalence pretty quickly and so there's there was really a, a pretty quick switch between not being so sure or comfortable with this and being in full on have to defend my child from my government mode
1: yeah it's interesting because it's like you <laughs> you're putting voice to something interesting which is it was easier to fully embrace your position as the parent of a trans kid when someone was pushing against it than it was like when you were in a fully accepting community. Like it felt like you could be a little more ambivalent there. But then as soon as like a legislator's like, I don't think this is real or whatever they were saying, you were like, No, this is my kid.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny because there's a similar sort of dynamic that happens even with the medical side of gender affirming care. Because the reality is that there's no one more concerned about the side effects of gender-affirming care, the the long-term impacts on children. The parents of kids, right? Like literally, the parents of trans kids, and yet, you know, the Missouri government passed this ban on on gender affirming care for kids for any kid who doesn't have a prescription by August twenty eighth, I think. Which means there are so many folks who weren't sure about this whole gender affirming care thing. Parents, uh, folks who weren't weren't so sure about giving their kids puberty blockers, who are scrambling to try to get a prescription, perhaps prematurely at this point because of the government, which is just wild. Are you one of them? You know my kid's not ready for any sort of gender affirming care. In some ways we really are scared about that because it, it means we can't get him started on anything, which means we can't get him grandfathered in, which means I don't know what we're gonna do if if that's the road he goes down. But I certainly am one of them in the sense that you know I, I don't know what the future holds for my son in terms of medical transition. All I'm asking for is that the government not interfere with our discussions with our doctors. Your Jewishness
1: seems really enmeshed with your trans activism. So I want to get into how and why. I wonder if we can start by talking about the way you see gender being discussed in the Jewish tradition. Because you you have all of these passages you cite and stories that I didn't know.
0: Yeah, look, um, there have always been trans people. I really believe it. There will always be trans people. It's just another way of being human. And so when you look closely at Jewish history and Jewish texts, there have always been trans Jews and there have always been texts about trans Jews. Uh, The early rabbis living 2000 years ago or so look around and it's just self-evident to them that there are more than two biological genders. Uh, they described six, seven, eight in the Mishnah. Again, this is an eighteen hundred year old text. We're talking about, you know, the, the normative Jewish understanding of the Adam and Eve story is not that Eve was a rib, but that the first human being, Adam, uh, earth being, right? The, the word kind of means mud being, uh, dirt being, uh, was created back to back with male and female characteristics, which is to say that that. Jewish mythology says that the first human being was a non-binary intersex person and that this Adam was only split in half later and turned into Adam and Eve as gendered beings.
1: Did you always see it like this? Or did you go back to these texts and come to a new understanding of them once it was clear you had a trans kid?
0: First of all, these are really mainstream texts. So I studied these in rabbinical school and did not study them in, you know, like a queer texts kind of class, uh, but have come back to them again and again over the years, particularly since I realized that I have a trans kid, because it's incredibly powerful to be able to look at a tradition that has been so important to me in my life and know that my son has ancestors there, ancestors waiting for him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In Missouri, it seems like a lot of the activism around trans kids is being spearheaded by the Jewish community. Why is that?
0: I'm pretty proud of us, I got to say. We had a moment early on this session at one of the first bills where all the activists who had shown up at 8 a.m. for this hearing, took a picture after the hearing out in the hallway, and then I just kind of shouted out randomly, okay, Jewish community, stay here. And there were like five people who walked away. (laughs)
1: Yeah, a priest later gave a sermon where he was like, "I guess I was the photographer, Goy.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Mike Angel, I love him. Uh, it's been amazing. You know, I, I think part of it is really sociological that Jews have long understood what happens when we start otherizing vulnerable minorities. We we just start ha- have become historically attuned to that. I think culturally attuned.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I saw what was happening with the Jewish community in Missouri and trans kids, I thought about that Martin Niemöller quote. Yeah. Niemöller was a Christian minister who didn't speak out about Nazism, originally embraced Nazism. Eventually, he he did speak out. And he he, he said, basically, first they came for socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for trade unionists. I didn't speak out. And then eventually, you know, they came for me and there was there was no one left to speak for me and to me i just thought of that tradition but of course it binds everything you're doing up with such a violent and horrific moment for jews
0: yeah you know i this is not the holocaust what is happening very clearly thank god and i hope we don't we don't get anywhere like that but i certainly understand the holocaust and i understand Germany in the late 20s and early 30 s in a way that I never thought I would, uh, because I see it. I see the way that fear and disgust and misinformation about a tiny vulnerable minority can be weaponized by a political minority to hold on to power. And it's it's what we are seeing in Missouri. and it it, it was the biggest change in this session. Is in years past, most mainstream Republicans, you know, suburban St. Louis, suburban Kansas City, business-oriented Republicans, you'd go into their office behind closed doors and they would tell you they didn't like these bills. They understood that they were hurting kids. And and so they would arrange behind the scenes for them not to happen, right? They they wouldn't vote against these bills, but they would arrange for them not to get a hearing until it was too late to really pass them, uh, and things like that. And this year, they stopped looking us in the eye. They stopped having meetings with us. They stopped. Being able to admit out loud how evil these bills are because they realized how good the politics of hurting my kid is for them.
1: This year, did you ever try to pull aside some of those more, quote unquote, mainstream Republican legislators and say, hey, you know, last time I was here last year, it was a different thing. What's going on?
0: Oh, yeah. Over and over again. You you know, I, I was down 12 times this year.
1: What happened when you did that?
0: Well, let me tell you one story in particular. Dean Plocker is the Speaker of the House here in Missouri. He's a suburban uh, St. Louis business-oriented Republican. And so I worked with the local Chamber of Commerce, known as St. Louis Inc., to get a meeting with him. Worked for months on this. Got the meeting, uh, confirmed it a week before, confirmed it the day before, got uh, on a bus to head down to Jeff City, two hours there, two hours back walk in with the professional from St. Louis Inc. and their lobbyist to to Dean Placker's office, and I see him shut the door. Okay. So he's finishing a meeting. Fine. Then I see him pop out and go to walk past us. And the St. Louis Inc. person grabs him and says, "You know, Speaker Placker, we, uh, we have a meeting with you that's been scheduled. I don't have time for you. How about just five minutes? We came all the way down for this meeting. I don't have five minutes. You got 30 seconds right now. So right like what do you, I start scrambling what do you say for 30 seconds and I, I start talking about please just leave my family alone small government you know stay out of our doctor's office these sorts of quick talking points and he refuses to look me in the eye refuses turns to the saint louis saint lobbyist and says we're going to pass the Mike Moon bill as it is that's that's the bill that passed and begins to walk away and he starts talking the, the lobbyist starts saying you know uh, speaker, you know, we're going to lose forty million dollars a year if if this bill passes in revenue. And the speaker turns to him and says, "Well, I guess y'all are going to have to find that money somewhere else." And walked away. And these people were stunned. It, it was clear they they had never been treated like that by the speaker before. Uh, I was stunned. I was. It was the most dispiriting day I've ever had in the Capitol, and I've had some bad days in the Capitol. But just that that the people who used to be The moderates, the reasonable Republicans, have gone all in to the point where they're not even interested in listening to the folks who nominally are part of their base, the the business community.
1: After the break, how Missouri's new laws are going to impact the rabbi and his family directly, and why this summer may offer them a little relief. While many of the anti-LGBTQ bills that were under consideration in Missouri this year didn't pass, there are two that did. And both of them are going to directly impact Rabbi Daniel and his family. One is a trans sports ban. The other limits the kind of health care trans kids can get. It says if the kids aren't receiving gender-affirming care like puberty blockers as of August 28th of this year, they can't get a prescription for them at all. This restriction is going to expire in 2027, but the rabbi's son is nine years old right now on the precipice of big change.
0: Yeah, you know, SB 49, which blocks gender affirming care, is going to perfectly uh, lock out my son. He's not going to be grandfathered in by having started treatment, and he would need gender affirming treatment, assuming that's the road we go down uh, before this bill expires in four years. Uh, So we're very much in in the black hole of that bill. And so we started reaching out to gender-affirming clinics in Illinois. And unfortunately, what we're being told over and over again by these clinics is that they either don't have capacity or that they are intending to follow Missouri statutes for Missouri residents. Wow. Which is incredibly concerning. And I don't know what we're going to do.
1: You're only 20 minutes away from Illinois.
0: Yeah. 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 We're 20 minutes out. You know, I live in my childhood home which was also my dad's childhood home which my grandpa built um my, my son lives in my childhood bedroom which is my dad's childhood bedroom uh we really don't want to leave we desperately want to stay but you know the sports bill puts put so much less energy into it because it's so much less impactful right we're not going to have to flee the state because of the sports bill but
1: your kid loves sports right
0: My kid loves sports and it applies not just to public schools, but private schools and to private sports leagues as well. And we haven't told our son yet. This is the one that's really sort of bothering my wife in particular right now is how are we going to tell him that next year he can't play soccer with the fourth grade boys that he's been playing soccer with for four years now?
1: Do you think there's any chance you just keep playing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I think a lot of good people are going to commit a lot of quiet civil disobedience around these bills. I think it's going to happen in medical situations. I think it's going to happen in athletic situations. Because the reality is, I I have a lot of faith in Missourians. It's our government that is doing this and doing it from a very minoritarian kind of perspective. Um Almost everyone, including, you know, my aunt and uncle who are Republicans, folks like that, they, they get it when they get to know a trans kid. And they don't like these bills. and They want to make sure that my kid is safe.
1: The reason Rabbi Daniel is so certain that the people in the state are going to protect his kid is that he's seen a kind of magic happen when they do. Last year, after another disappointing round of testifying in Jefferson City, the rabbi was sitting with a friend in the hallway of the Capitol comforting a bunch of trans kids. The kids were crying after being questioned by state legislators. Rabbi Daniel was thinking to himself, these kids need a place they can go. And the friend he was with, Shira Berkowitz, is someone he went to summer camp with.
0: And Shira and I turned to each other and and said, you know, we really, we we need a camp for these kids. We need to take them somewhere that's just an oasis away from this. And so last summer, we ended up starting a camp. We call it Camp Indigo Point. Uh it was a one-week camp. We thought we were gonna get, you know, 20 trans kids from around St. Louis, right? Like who's gonna trust us with their children? Um and we had to drive out to the campsite that we rented to count every one of those 97 beds because we had 97 campers come from 27 states. Uh we had 60 kids on the wait list. We had we had a kid come from Alaska. Uh it it was wild. I, I think it's the best thing I've ever been a part of. I I genuinely believe that there will be adults who will be alive because they had this one week of camp.
1: I assume your son goes.
0: My son goes. Yes. Yes. Um, In fact, our our minimum age last year was determined by how old my son was last year. Uh, You know, my role at camp, because I am not queer myself, is I go around and take pictures and cry. That's sort of (laughs) my role. Uh, But I I don't know if this will have as much resonance to others, but the most magic place is swim dock.
1: Hmm. Why?
0: A huge number of trans folk, when you talk to them, will tell you that swimming is what they miss the most from before they transitioned.
1: Because being in a bathing suit outs you,
0: outs you, and can feel uncomfortable and brings forth discomfort with your own body and stares and public ridicule or fear of public ridicule and right all of these things that go along uh, with being in a bathing suit in a public place. And so we had about a third of the kids come with letters saying that they weren't going to swim because of um, sort of broad body dysmorphia issues. Oh wow! They all swam. Everyone swam because they went down to swim dock and they looked around, and not only were there no eyes to judge them, but everywhere they looked, they saw people with bodies like their own, and. It was magical to watch kids stop being uncomfortable within themselves.
1: You must need this this year.
0: Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Yeah. Now, I don't go to camp. I I will go for a day here and there and I'm the president of the board or the co-president of the board. Um, But I am I am not queer. And it's it's been really important that this be a place where everyone who is public in any way be like these kids.
1: Rabbi Daniel, I'm I'm really grateful for your time and for your activism. Thanks for doing the
0: work. Oh, grateful to you all. And I'm such a fan of the podcast, really. I'm a regular listener.
1: Daniel Bogard is a dad and a rabbi for Central Reform Congregation in St. Louis, Missouri. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Going over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, Rob Gunther, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I'm handing things off to the What Next TBD crew for now. I hope you have a long weekend in store for you. I'm going to be back in this feed on Tuesday.